give more. Jesus says, don't seek revenge. Don't try to get even. Give yourself for the good of others, even your enemies. And that's the exhortation this morning as we come to this passage. And the main idea, I think, is this. We've taken three smaller sections and we've put them together. And so to try to explain to you what's going on a little bit, remember, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. There are six what are called antithesis. It just means Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He does this six times. And so we are taking the two final, the two of the six, so number five, number six, as, as well as verse 48, which is the conclusion of the whole section. And so I've tried to put them all together in one succinct main idea. It goes this way, uh, pursue perfection, holiness, do not seek revenge, and love your enemies. You can see how that's unfolded before you in your outline. And with that said, we'll pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. Pray that you would encourage the discouraged this morning, and that you would discomfort the too comfortable. As we listen to your word come to us once more, the mouth of Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, let's do some more setting of the table so we are as familiar with the context as we ought to be uh, as we come to this section. Remember, Matthew has written to the end of calling us to submit ourselves to Jesus as the Messiah King. And he took pains in those first four chapters to lay out for us Jesus credentials. Jesus has the right pedigree, he fulfills the right prophecies, and he has the endorsement of God himself. Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah King. And now in chapters 5 through 9, which are the next sort of segment in Matthew, Matthew wants to bring us into contact with the king's power, with his authority. And so in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus works miracles, and uh, we see him exercise his power over diseases and demons and even death itself. In chapters 5 through 7, which precede that, the section we're in, we come into contact with Jesus' words, which are authoritative. And he begins by calling us to consider whether or not we are in the kingdom of God. That's the big question in the Sermon on the Mount is who's in? Who gets into the kingdom? And Jesus provides for us uh, an answer that has a part A and a part B. He says those who are in the kingdom are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt, those who recognize I could never live a life good enough to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and Pharisees. You'll no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, as we have said, are the goats of righteousness and religion. You know, they are as Tom Brady is to football or as Michael Jordan is to basketball when it comes to religion. And so we recognize that we don't have the the righteous skill to stick with the metaphor to defeat Tiger Woods at golf on a Sunday when he's in his prime. We we can't do it. We, We cannot obtain righteousness on our own. We can't get in. So who's in the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's the poor in spirit. Those who come to Jesus in dependent faith, that's who gets into the kingdom. That's part A of the answer. And part B is this. It's those who hear and do the will of the Father. You see, those who come to Jesus and depend on Jesus live like Jesus. Those who are rooted in Christ bear the fruit of Christianity. And so we can see in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And in verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is trying to accomplish two major goals in this sermon. He is calling us to himself that we might depend on him for salvation, and he's calling us to live in light of that salvation. He's calling us to holiness. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to himself and to holiness. And he's been showing us just what kind of righteousness he calls us to. It's not a righteousness that submits itself merely to the letter of the law or even the pharisaical construals of the law, but to the law's very heart. And so we learn that if we simply have not killed someone, we haven't kept the sixth commandment. That indeed murder can be committed with the mouth and in the heart. We recognize if we have been faithful to our spouse, that that does not exonerate us from committing heart adultery with even just a lustful look. We recognize that casual divorce and remarriage can even make us guilty of adultery. Jesus teaches us that we have to be true to our word. And simply uh, swearing by counterfeit oaths that we never intend to keep, that doesn't get us off the hook for wrongly bearing God's name. This morning, we come to a section where Jesus says, you cannot use the law of the tooth, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as an excuse to exact revenge. In fact, the purpose of this law is that you would love others, your neighbors, even your enemies. And so with that sort of preamble, let's look at verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We're all pretty familiar with this phrase and this lex talionis, the law law of the tooth from the Old Covenant. Sounds familiar to us. 
But I would wager that this is one of the most, if not the most, misunderstood verse in the Bible. It's misunderstood from the likes of Gandhi, who said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Remember that? It's understood by folks like Gandhi and uh, companies like Snickers. I don't know if you, if you remember back in 2015, Snickers ran a wonderful Super Bowl commercial, um, and, and it featured a living room that we're all familiar with, right? The, the living room of the Brady Bunch. And so you've, you've got Mike and Carol Brady. They're sitting in the living room on that just stylish green couch. Uh, there's a little lamp there. And the beginning of a famous scene from the show starts, a scene most everybody used to know. Maybe you don't know it now, but I'll describe it for you. Uh, and so, so Marcia comes in. She's like a teenage girl, and she is just undone. And she, she says, you know, Peter has hit me in the nose with a football, and I can't go to the dance like this. Got a bandage across her nose. There's a twist, though, in the commercial. The usual actress who plays Marcia has been replaced by Danny Trejo. Now, if you, if you don't know who, who Danny is, uh, he is a hardened Hollywood tough guy, okay? I mean, he is, if you've never seen a picture, you have to Google Danny Trejo when you get home, but, but he's muscular, he's all tatted up, he's wearing just like a leather vest and leather pants, long hair, he has a real biker vibe going on, okay? And so they, they say to him, uh, sweetie, I'm sure that Peter didn't mean to hit you in the face with a football, I'm sure it was an accident. And Danny Trejo says, eye for an eye, that's what dad always says. Dad says, well, I've never said that, sweetheart. And then before he's even finished, he slams the axe through the living room table and says, shut up! It's time for Peter to learn a lesson. They say, hey, have a Snickers, right? Danny Trejo eats the Snickers, and he transforms back into the normal Marsha. You probably remember the, the hook of the ad campaign, right? You're not you when you're hungry. Pretty smart, pretty smart. And there are a number of ways we could go with that illustration, but I want to hone in on this. Did you notice the justification for Danny Trejo seeking revenge against Peter? Eye for an eye. He, like Gandhi, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, and along with the Pharisees, misunderstood and misappropriated this legal instruction. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is not a summons to retaliation or revenge. In fact, it is intended to restrain such sinful behavior. So here's how it works. I, let's say, I steal uh, David's wallet. I steal David's wallet. Um, you know, I know he carries a lot of cash with him all the time. So if you're a thief, he's a great guy to pickpocket. Carries a gun too, so maybe not a great idea. But, but anyhow, I, let's say I steal his wallet and he thinks, you know what, there's no eye for an eye here, right? We don't need the punishment to fit the crime. I'm going to escalate Hatfields and McCoy style, right? I'm going to burn down your house and, and you know, just, just eliminate your family. You know, wow, that escalated really quickly. 
But what the lex taliones, the, the, the law of the tooth, says, and I'm probably saying taliones wrong. Eh, anyhow, uh, what the law of the tooth says is that he doesn't need to do that. He shouldn't take revenge into his own hands. He should seek out a legal court and say, look, he stole my wallet, here's the evidence, and expect the judiciary to rule in such a way as to make restoration. See, the law of the tooth, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, means simply this. The punishment fits the crime. And so in our situation, uh, David uh, would get his wallet back and the amount of money that was in it. I would have to pay back to him so that I would lose what I intended to steal and he would gain it. That's how it works in the book of Exodus. So you can see that the law is not intended to be a catalyst for revenge but rather to throw a wet blanket on our desires to seek vengeance, to, to calm the whole thing down. And so you go, well, how, how then, how did it get flipped into this direction, right? How did we get from restraining our sinful tendency to try to seek revenge on our own to uh, Danny Trejo uh, with an axe in the Brady's living room, eye for an eye? How did that transition happen? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. Sin. The Pharisees, like us, like all of humanity up to us, we have that default posture of when we are wronged, trying to seek out justice on our own apart from God. And it is a good thing to, to desire justice and to seek justice. However, these personal relationships and sort of situations we have in view this morning, very rarely does our vengeance produce the righteousness of God. In fact, quite the, the opposite is usually true. But as we've said, we love that don't get mad, get even mentality. Some of us, this morning even, are maybe driven by revenge. We are from the school of Anigo Montoya. It's also a princess bride, right? You killed my father, prepared to die. It drives his whole life. Maybe some of, some of us are in that boat. We would actually prefer the pharisaical construal of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law, then it's real meaning. We would favor that because it would allow us to harbor the grudges that we refuse to let go of. There's somebody that you're angry at this morning? Someone who's wronged you? You just can't wait for them to get what they deserve? It's not hard to see how this law became inverted. Jesus will cut this sort of misinterpretation off at the legs, however. Look with me at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus makes one statement and then supports it with four illustrations. And again, we need to be careful that we do not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. We've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount that if we remove these antithesis, antitheses from their context, they become pretext for a proof text, and they actually take us away from the intended meaning of Jesus. Some have read this passage in isolation and concluded that verse 39 in particular, do not resist the one who is evil, means that all Christians are required to be pacifists, should never practice self-defense or the defense of another, and should never strive against evil. Tolstoy famously quipped that this verse taught there should be no soldiers, no policemen, and no magistrates, because all of these institutions restrain evil. And if we look just at verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil, we go, well, okay, this presents an issue for us, doesn't it? But a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. We we must take into account the whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole of Matthew's gospel, as well as the whole of the Bible, if we are to rightly understand what Jesus intends to communicate. So let's first consider the near context and the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things we've pointed out over and over again is that Jesus is making use of hyperbole and exaggerated language in order to add force to the rhetorical punch of what he is saying. He intends for us to feel overwhelmed by what he is saying. He's saying, here's the bar of righteousness, and I want you to know that you can't reach it. Do not take an oath at all. And we said last week, that's not what he, he doesn't say, you know, that Christians can't testify in court or can't make promises to one another when they get married, that they, it's okay for Christians to take an oath, a promise, make a promise when they join a church, right? Jesus is saying, if you're going to take a counterfeit oath, an oath that you intend to break, then it's best not to make any oath at all. Rather, my followers, the citizens of my kingdom, are to be people of such moral fiber that their word can be trusted without an oath. Go back a little further, you you see in the commentary on lust, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your left hand causes, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. We don't don't see a whole lot of Christian pirates, do we? A whole lot of eye patches and, and peg legs and hook hands. Why not? Because we understand hyperbole, right? The same thing is going on here. Jesus is using language so that we feel the weight of what he is saying, of what he is calling us to. That's part one of near contexts. Secondly, we need to recognize that the context of this paragraph is a legal one. We know that because he is addressing the law of the tooth, the law of the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's talking to us about legal situations. In fact, do not resist is a legal phrase, which means do not sue, right? Don't take someone 
for all they are worth. All right, now let's, let's bring in the far context also. We, we recognize from the rest of the New Testament in Matthew here that do not resist cannot be an absolute principle. Why? Well, Jesus resisted Satan when tempted in the wilderness. James and Peter command Christians to resist the devil. I think he qualifies as one who is evil. Paul resists other believers, including Peter, to his face. Throughout the Bible, we see God directing his people to resist invading nations. Moreover, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, that God has entrusted the power of the sword to the state. Additionally, nowhere in the New Testament does any Christian leader, not John the Baptist, not Jesus, not any of the apostles, no one ever instructs a soldier to quit. Rather, soldiers are told to repent and to be content with their wages. We also see in the book of Acts, Paul makes use of his rights as a Roman citizen. He just doesn't go along with evil and allow himself to be just completely smashed down. I mean, sometimes he doesn't call upon the rights, but sometimes he does. He appeals to Caesar. In fact, Jesus, when slapped across the face, does not turn the other cheek and offer it also. But rather, he says in John 18, verse 23, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? In other words, Jesus confronts uh, the, uh, the soldier who is acting on behalf of the priest at the time. He says, if I've spoken wrongly, then perhaps I earned the slap, but tell me what it is. I've spoken no wrong. He's challenging his sham of a trial. Take all this evidence together, near context, far context, and it helps us to recognize Jesus is not saying, let the mugger get on with his muggery. Allow the thief to continue unopposed with his thievery and the killer with his killing. He isn't saying, let Hitler murder Jews. He isn't saying, let Americans murder their babies. He isn't saying, allow yourself to continue to be abused without any recourse. He isn't instructing us to make poor financial decisions. Jesus here is is not calling us to perform surgery, cut open our heads, and yank out our common sense and our conscience and our wisdom. That's not what he's doing. So what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? Like what Keener says, it's not that one must never fight back, but that Christians must value others above themselves in concrete and consistent ways. Another commentator adds, John Stott, says, Christ's illustrations are not to be taken as the charter for any unscrupulous tyrant, ruffian, beggar, or thus. People used to write better than they do now. His purpose was to forbid revenge, not encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice, He teaches not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. 
big point of verse 38 through 42. Do not seek revenge. And you'll notice in all of these illustrations, someone is taking something from us. And what Jesus says is when somebody takes something from you, your immediate reaction ought not be to try to take something back from them. They made you hurt, and so you'll make them hurt. He says, no, don't take eye for an eye, as you guys have understood it, but give. Give of yourself. Be willing to give up your honor, your rights, your time, and even your money. You see that in the first illustration, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, The other also, the idea here is a backhanded slap from the right hand, back of the hand, across the face. It's not about pain, it's about insult. This would be a really insulting thing back in the day. Be similar to if, um, imagine if somebody spit on your face now, right? Dishonoring, infuriating. You know, you're going to want to spit back, punch back. Jesus' instruction says, hey, if that happens, don't do it. If someone insults you, endure. Don't, don't in your mind cultivate all these scenarios in which you can seek your revenge. Don't plot their demise. Instead, give up your vengeance, your honor, in favor of of peace. It it is interesting. Sometimes when we read these verses, we think the motivation for offering someone the other cheek or the motivation to do any of these things is so that people will come to Christ and be converted. But you'll notice there's not any of that in the text. I assume those are, are potential outcomes, but the primary reason we are to give up ourselves, our honor, for others, to sort of create a peace, is because Jesus tells us to. And he's the king. He's worthy of our obedience. The second illustration, if one would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The tunic was a garment, was worn inside, close to the clothes. I always thought of it sort of like underwear. All the commentators make sure to tell you it's not exactly like underwear. It's more, more like a shirt. That's how the NIV translates it. But anyhow, Jesus says, if somebody sues you for your clothing, offer them your outer garment, your cloak also. And that sounds sort of weird to us, um, but it's really, really, I mean, just bananas to the original audience. I mean, the cloak was this garment that was essential. It kept you warm. It kept the weather off. You could camp on it. It'd be like you're bedding at night. So the poor, even if it was put up for uh, some kind of debt, it had to be returned to them at night. Everybody was allowed to keep their cloak. And Jesus is saying, look, legally, you might have a right to something. And if they sue you, be willing to take off your cloak and give it to them as well. Once more, we recognize Jesus is employing hyperbole. No Jewish person in the first century is hearing Jesus' words here and then going about naked or in a loincloth. That's not Jesus' point. His point is, do not demand your rights. 
Be willing to give up your rights for the good of someone else. Create peace. Third illustration, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. This this is a little foreign to us. It's a little opaque. But at the time, a Roman soldier could come and conscript uh, anyone to carry their stuff. So imagine how galling this would be. Uh, Romans have conquered you and your people. They're running the show, and they, they've got whatever it is soldiers carry at that time. You know, they have a big burden, and they come, and they find you, and they say, all right, next thousand paces are yours. And you have to do it, no matter what you're in the middle of doing. And Jesus says, if that happens, humble yourself and be willing to go another thousand paces. Be willing to go an extra mile. Again, we want to recognize how Jesus uses language. He's not saying, and once you have gone two miles, not one step further. You've done your job. No, he he is calling us to cultivate an attitude of other-centeredness. Just give up your honor, give up your rights, Give up your time. And then this last illustration even switches. Nobody's taken anything from us. They're just asking of us. He says, even be willing to to give up your money. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, Jesus isn't saying, all right, I've got 20 blocks to drive to work every day. And on the corner, each corner of every block, there is a panhandler. And each panhandler has written on their sign, um, I am going to be honest. I will use your money for drugs and drink. Please give. And Jesus isn't saying, I have to stop at every panhandler and give to them indiscriminately. This is not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to remove our common sense, our conscience, or any practice of wisdom. He's not telling us to contradict all of those principles we learned in Proverbs. He is teaching us that the disposition of the Christian is one of generosity. That we are willing to give our honor, our rights, our time, and our money for the good of others. That we are willing to be insulted and defrauded because peace is better than vengeance. Reminds me of verse 8, sorry, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. Are you a peacemaker? I mean, does this sort of disposition describe you? Others-oriented? I mean, maybe one of these illustrations, even though it's hyperbole, literally happens to you later. Somebody slaps you across the face or spits on you. Can you in good conscience say, I think my reaction would be to turn the other cheek, to not respond with rage? This is a high calling. It is meant to be overwhelming. Remember, we said the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus calling us to himself and calling us to holiness. We are meant to go, I can't do this. I need Jesus. I need to depend on him. I need to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How? How can we do this? Why does God call us to do this? Think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we, we actually have here a pretty good image of what God has done for us in Christ our Lord. Jesus, when going to the cross, was slapped and spat upon. And don't miss this. Those things which evil men did to Jesus, they're actually pictures of what you and I do to the Lord our God when we sin. He was slapped and spit upon, dishonored. He was stripped of his inner and outer garments, shamed on his way to the cross. All of his rights set aside. Indeed, all of us deserve God's righteous wrath. All of us are like these evil men. And yet God did not, in his anger, put us beneath his vengeance. Instead, he sent his son to be slapped and spit upon and to be stripped for our sins. He sent Jesus to go the extra mile to the place of the skull where he would die for the sins of his people, for the sins of all who would come to him as beggars, asking for his grace and his mercy and his love. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom of heaven. Non-Christian, if you want to know God, you must come to Christ with empty hands and ask for his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. Come to Jesus, and you know what? He will not refuse you. Jesus gives of himself for the good of his people. This is no easy task to give of ourselves as Jesus gave of himself. We are more cut from the cloth of Lamech than we are of David. You remember Lamech? Uh, in Genesis 4, he sort of acts like Batman in the new Batman movie. He says, I am vengeance. This is what happens, what he says in, in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, he was also the, the first polygamist, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I think that's more our default position. And contrast that with how David responds to Saul. Remember, David is on the run from Saul. He's in a cave. Saul's trying to kill him. And Saul comes in to relieve himself. 
could use a restroom, a potty break. And David and his men are there, and his men say, this is a golden opportunity. The Lord has given your enemy into your hand. And instead of cutting off Saul's head, he cuts off the corner of his garment, lets him go outside, and then comes out of the cave himself and says, hey, I could have killed you, I could have ended you, but I spared you. And Saul, Saul responds in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 24, we see Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with the good for which you have done to me this day. Saul is overwhelmed. Of course he does continue trying to kill David in just a short time, but, but you see the difference between Lamech and, and David. One follows the way of holiness. The other follows the way of man and of the evil one. Friends, if we have been changed, if we know Jesus, we will be striving to respond to wrong that is done to us, like David. Striving to respond to wrong that's done to us, like Jesus. We will work to obey Paul's instruction in Romans 12 and verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, Jesus calls us to bless those who curse us, to give ourselves up for the good of others, even our enemies. Look with me at verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's calling up another Old Testament principle, and we need to point out, the Old Testament does tell us to love our neighbors, but it never, ever tells us to hate our enemies. That's a pharisaical creation. In fact, we just heard this morning from our scripture reading in Exodus that if your enemy's donkey falls into a hole, I think it was a hole, something bad happens to your enemy's donkey and your enemy, pull them both out. Care for your enemy. The same is true in Leviticus. Listen to what's written in chapter 19, verses 17 through 18. And then 33 and 34. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In verse 33, when a stranger sojourn, sojourns with you in the land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. 
and you shall love him as yourself, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There is no command to hate your enemy. And so Jesus is correcting these things. He says, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is an incredible statement. And it's, I don't think it's hyperbole here. Love your enemies. He says specifically, pray for those who persecute you. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you prayed for your enemies? For someone you didn't like? When was the last time you prayed for that neighbor across the street? Or for Vladimir Putin? When was the last time you prayed for your enemies? Friends, listen. If the cruel torture of the crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for them, remember he prayed, forgive them, they know not what they do, if the cross could not silence Jesus' prayer for his enemies, what pains, what pride, what prejudice, what sloth could justify us silencing our prayers for our enemies? There is no excuse. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And look at the reason, the motivation in verse 45 so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is not saying that one makes themselves a member of the kingdom, a son of God, by loving their enemies. Rather, this is speaking about a demonstration of sonship. Right? Those who are in the family of God bear the family resemblance. I have five children, most of you know, four of them boys, one of them a girl. They all look exactly like me, although Lily does have the appropriate feminine features. But often, people will say to me, you are raising up a clone army. It's frightening, because all of my children bear those brawn family characteristics. You know, they're all Ruggedly handsome and dazzlingly beautiful. That's a brawn. Likewise, when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, God says, that's a Christian. That's a Christian. Because we're like our Father in heaven, who does what to his enemies? Well, he died for us, and he gives grace, his goodness, to all of his creation. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so when we are good to those who are bad to us, we are like our heavenly Father. Look at verse 48. We are pursuing holy perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
this verse is intentionally worded like Leviticus 19.2 and other parts of your Old Testament that say, Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Later Peter will say, Be holy for I am holy. And so two things should happen when we get to verse 48. One is we should see, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and recognize this is the culmination, this is the inference, this is the conclusion of all that has come before, and we should go, I can't do it. We should be driven to Jesus. Verse 48 helps us to recognize that while this sermon is a description of disciples, it is primarily a portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the one who lives perfectly, blamelessly, who is perfectly holy as the Lord our God is holy. He is the one who has not harbored an impure thought. He is the one who has not wrongly expressed a murderous anger. He is the one who always keeps his word. He is the one who has laid down his life for his enemies and made them his friends. This is all about Jesus It calls us to depend on him and his righteousness, and it calls us to pursue holiness. Verse 48 is an imperative. We come to Jesus, we're rooted in Jesus, we bear the fruit of Christianity. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Look with me, the fruit of being like our heavenly Father in this section comes from loving our enemies, right? But look at verses 46 and 47. This is a reason that we need to love our enemies. There's two reasons. One is we want to be like our heavenly father, like father, like son. Here's the second reason we're to love our enemies. Because if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet those, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles, that's unbelievers in this context, do the same? You see what he's saying? If you love those people who love you, you're not changed. You're no different than the rest of the world. Tax collectors were not popular people, right? He's saying, if you only love people that love you, you're no better than the mobsters. You're no better than the politicians. You're no better than the worst of the worst. Because even mobsters and politicians have friends. Friends, if we have encountered Jesus, we're depending on him, if we've really become poor in spirit, if we've entered into the kingdom, then we will be pursuing holiness. These characteristics of a Christian, of a kingdom citizen, will begin to mark us. We cannot walk away from a true encounter with Christ and not be changed. I had uh, breakfast with Dennis this week. It's nice enough to take me out. Uh, I do welcome all, anytime you guys want to take me out for food, I am up for that. like free meals. Just saying. But in the course of our conversation, he he laid out an illustration that I'm going to share with you this morning. Adapted, of course. So imagine with me that uh, it was a normal Sunday, and I showed up 20 minutes late. 
And I came in and, and I looked, you know, ruggedly handsome, dazzlingly beautiful, like always, uh, and just all put together, everybody thought, you know, nothing wrong, it looks like he normally looks, sounds like he normally sounds. And I said to you, well, I, I'm really sorry that I'm late, because on the way from my house to the church, I got hit by an asteroid. He's like, what? There's, no, there's not a mark on him. Right, you, if you believed me, you would be aghast. But you would have some evidence to question whether or not I'd been hit by an asteroid. Surely, if I got hit by an asteroid, even a small one, you know, the clothing would be frayed, smell like smoke, maybe some marks on my face. Or maybe this, maybe if I told you I was on my way over and I got punched in the face by Mike Tyson and it took me 20 minutes to come to. Right, there would be some swelling in my face. There would be evidence of the encounter. Friends, likewise, if we have encountered Jesus, if we have been hit with the gospel, punched in the face with the gospel, run over by the grace of God, we will be marked by these Christian characteristics. So here's the question. Are you changed? Have you been changed? Jesus can change you. He can take you from death to life. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He changes all who come to him, poor in spirit. He calls us to himself and he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we might pursue holiness. So that we might give ourselves for others, even our enemies. And we do that because he has given himself for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult parts of it. There are passages of scripture that are hard to understand. And then there are passages of scripture that are just hard. Lord, this is one of the latter for the most part. It is hard for us to consider how we might live in this way. Indeed, we, we need your mercy and grace to save us from our sins, and we need your mercy and grace to empower our obedience. We, we recognize that we will never be completely perfect or without sin until eternity comes. But at the same time, we, we know that we ought to be pursuing holiness even now. And so, so we ask once more for your forgiveness where we have failed and will fail. We thank you that because of Christ, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and we confess them to you, past, present, and future. And Lord, we, we pray that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to live righteous lives, to give ourselves up for the good of others, to love even our enemies, 
You are good. And we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.